The Elements contains language and material that may be distressing to some listeners. Discretion is advised. We present this advice from the Darwin Weather Bureau and the Northern Territory Emergency Services Organisation as a community service for top incidents. Make sure your communications are secure. Check your transistor radio and spare battery. Keep tuned to radio or television news broadcast. Back down your house by making sure all doors, windows are securely fastened or treated by diagonal. When we are staring in the face of danger, the brain's hypothalamus is activated. It initiates a series of chemical releases and nerve cell responses. Adrenaline is released into the bloodstream, our heart rate increases, and our awareness, sight, and impulses all intensify and quicken. But there's something else that pushes us to survive. Something beyond activated chemicals or nerve responses. It's something unique to us all. Something that can't easily be calculated. I'm Stuart Diver and this is The Elements. you just got to fight for yourself. Everyone is an equal when they're at sea. As we go to air tonight, New South Wales is in the grip of a major bushfire emergency. If you don't believe in heaven, I know hell does exist because we've seen it. This is air. Cyclone Tracy. December 24th, 1974. Located in the top end of the Northern Territory, Darwin is Australia's smallest, wettest and most northerly capital city. In the mid-1970s, it's home to almost 50,000 people, a diverse mix of white and Indigenous Australians as well as Asian and European immigrants. It's a place known for its relaxed attitudes and easy lifestyle. But more than anything else, Darwin is a place defined by its weather. When a cyclone begins, after a calm, steamy heat is over, there springs up a wicked, intermittent little wind. The trees grow restless. You can almost feel their terror. Then the wind increases. The rain begins, small and hard. Known as a hurricane or typhoon in the Northern Hemisphere, a tropical cyclone occurs when a cluster of thunderstorms develop in an area of low pressure. Cyclones form over the ocean and usually blow themselves out before they reach land. But Darwin is located right on the edge of the Timor Sea, making it particularly vulnerable. Powerful cyclones hit Darwin in 1897 and 1937 and caused widespread damage and loss of life. But those storms would pale in comparison to what arrived in the top end in the early hours of Christmas Day, 1974. We arrived in Darwin Christmas Eve, 24th December, 1974. Because my father was in the RAF and had a posting from Laverton Base to Darwin Base. In mid-December 1974, 15-year-old Vera Coupland, her mother Irene, stepfather Peter and their border colleague Kim make the almost 4,000-kilometre journey, about 2,500 miles, from Melbourne to Darwin. It's one of the longest overland trips in Australia, taking 10 days to complete. Luckily for Vera, her parents gave her something to pass the time. Mum and Dad gave me a red transistor for my birthday so that, again, with a little set of study phones, I could listen to my own music on the way up in the car. So I was happy that I just had that, because to me it was great. I was getting my own little radio, so I finally was able to have my own choice of music and shows. Little do they know, but Vera's little red radio will play a huge role in the fate of the Kooplands over the next 24 hours. Because as they get closer to Darwin, the radio starts to pick up on something very disturbing. I'm speaking on behalf of the Bureau of Meteorology through the courtesy of the station. A cyclone warning has been issued for this area. This short program is designed to help you know what a cyclone is and what to do when it strikes. There was news flashes coming through of cyclone warnings and I'd explained to Dad that I'd been hearing these. So 
they turned off their music and we were listening to the cyclone warnings coming through. The mood in the car turns from one of excitement and anticipation to one of caution and unease. Despite military postings all over the world, the Kuplans have never experienced a cyclone before. Everyone is suddenly alert and paying attention. Dad was driving. I was writing down the little list, handing it to Mum. And Dad said, well, we'll wait till we get to the flat, keep listening and just see what they say. Because although we've been in the tropics and had gone through monsoon seasons, we'd never, ever gone through a cyclone or anything like that. So we had really no idea how to prepare. It's kind of like excited because I knew we were going to a new place, but it was a little bit of apprehension and a little bit of, oh, this, this is maybe not the best thing that is happening on my first day here. By the time Vera and her family arrive in the northern Darwin suburb of Nightcliffe, it's mid-morning and the rain has started to fall. But there's no cause for alarm. If any family is capable of responding to the threat of an emergency, it's the Kuplans. My mum was a nurse and my dad was in the military. You very much learn in that environment that you stay calm. And my family was, you get nothing done with a panic head on. You have to put on the calm hat and you just have to get through it calmly. And by this time, it was already getting a lot of rain where we were in Nightcliff and the wind was picking up, whereas when we'd arrived, it was spitting with rain. So you could see in the three to four hours that we'd been there, by two o'clock, the rain was just coming, the noise of the wind was getting up, it was pushing up. So the alerts were coming with more in detailed instructions, filling up every available container with water, filling up your bath, getting tape and doing big crosses on your windows so that they wouldn't blow in, they'd go go out and there wouldn't be as much broken glass. Leave a window open on the opposite side to the wind. Clean up the garden, get furniture, toys and loose objects under cover. Securely nail loose fencing or galvanised walls. Make sure you have some emergency lighting on hand. If you haven't already got a first aid kit, get one together. Get a supply of tin goods. If that's not possible, cook all the food you can right now. Fill bath and laundry tubs with water. Tell other people, especially tourists in hotels and caravan parks, that a cyclone is coming. And tell them what to do. It's been suggested people in the top end didn't take cyclone warnings seriously at the time. And while that may be true to some extent, criticism seems harsh. Cyclone warnings were very common in Darwin in the 1970s, but rarely amounted to anything. In fact, only weeks earlier, residents were warned about Cyclone Selma, but it dissipated out to sea before doing any harm. In addition, roughly 70% of Darwin's workforce were public servants, who had only been in the city for two years or less. There wasn't a great understanding about what a cyclone could do, let alone many people who remembered the devastation of the 1937 cyclone. Author Sophie Cunningham focused on the female-gendered experience of the cyclone in her award-winning book, Warning, The Story of Cyclone Tracy. One of the things was that a lot of people who might have done more prep just didn't know it was coming. They were out Christmas shopping. It was a time of anticipation. It was like, we, we can give, not work for the year. We're going to go fishing. We're going to go back home and see our families. Our families are coming up to see us. All the different thoughts you might have on Christmas Eve. Uh, you know, I hope the storm doesn't make it too hard to cook. <laughs> you know, with hindsight, you can say, but how could people not have prepared? But a lot of people doing what that you could that wasn't necessarily enough. And the fact that buildings weren't necessarily, weren't up to the task of of handling a cyclone. So you could do all the prep you liked and that wasn't necessarily going to get you far. In the end, it would make little difference. For when Cyclone Tracy arrives, it will literally wipe a city off the map. Nothing and no one will be spared. And lastly, stay tuned to this station or any radio station for further weather forecasts. There's no need to worry unduly. 
As long as you're prepared. Mum cooks the dinner for Christmas Eve rather than Christmas Day. Because we thought, well, if Cyclone's coming, we're not quite sure what that means. So Dad kind of took over the practical side of getting the house ready for the Cyclone. I was listening to alerts, looking after the dog, and as Dad was doing things, helping him as much as possible. So we had dinner about 6.30. As the Couplins sit down for an early Christmas dinner, Cyclone Tracy is gaining strength. The wind starts to howl picking up debris and clattering it around the streets. Residents across Darwin start to get the sense that this time, the warnings might be real. It was starting to build up and was kind of going up in degrees of the category level where they said it was going to be and where it was going to hit and everything else. So by this time, everybody was listening to all the cyclone alerts of what was going on and, and getting things ready. But we, we felt we'd done everything possible and had were prepared for it. I think about 10 o'clock, Dad said, well, it might be an eventful night. Let's try to have an early night. And maybe we'll wake up in the morning and it'll just have just been a really bad storm and everything we've done will be fine. Vera heads to bed for what should be the start of an exciting new adventure in the top end. But she can't sleep. No one can. The fierce wind and rain rattles the roof and bangs on the walls like a violent intruder who won't let up. Leaks spring all over the apartment. Christmas stockings fall into the soggy wet carpet. Presents with colourful wrapping drenched and their contents destroyed. Cyclone Tracy has arrived. Time to duck for cover. By about 11, 11 11.15, we were all back up again going, can't sleep. (laughs) And by this time, the wind, the rain, it was getting so loud, really loud. And it just was coming down in sheets. My mum and dad said, I think we're going to move out of here. And as we moved out into the hallway, the louvers were just sucked out of the little metal bits and just flew across the room just like flying across like projectiles but the pressure in the wall and the main double window we had it was moving and vibrating and it sounded like someone was actually moving the wall but it would move out and come back move out and come back and the pressure was actually making the glass move and as we got through we were supposed to go into the bathroom and Dad pushed us said, no, we're going to go through into the back bedroom, which was my single bedroom. And there was this almighty noise where the window blew out, even with all the tape and everything we'd done. We just saw the window come away from the frame and just implode into through the house. It was so loud, so extreme, it wasn't just a noise anymore, you felt it. At midnight, the electricity across Darwin goes out, plunging the city into total darkness. Wind speeds of 217 kilometres per hour, or 135 miles per hour, are recorded at the airport before instruments are ripped off and pulled into the storm. In Darwin Harbour, ships try to flee, but it's too late. 17 vessels are in the water when the storm hits. Most will never be seen again. There are even sightings of tornadoes near Nightcliff, a unique phenomenon that can occur during a cyclone when winds reach above 300 kilometres per hour or 185 miles per hour. If Darwin had forgotten just how bad a cyclone could be, they're being given a horrible reminder. You could hear the roof tiles bing, bing, bing coming off and the bricks that were holding them. You could hear crashing of glass outside as it obviously it was popping in all the houses around us. And this ripping noise of roofs as they were literally coming off unit. The noise was actually the destruction of metal girders 
brick walls, plate glass, flying glass louvers. It was cars being thrown in the air. It was metal sheets screeching along the ground. It was the sound of things being projected and thrown and the whoosh as a vehicle would be thrown and plate glass would be broken and smashed and this siren of the cyclone warning. That sound of that warning is one you'll never forget once you hear it. It's piercing and all these sounds together were terrifying. The sirens ring out across Darwin, warning of a disaster that's already arrived. In Vera's bedroom, stepdad Peter tries to create a shelter with a few mattresses. But the water bogs them down and they fall over. There's nothing protecting them from all the carnage, apart from a flimsy plywood door, which rattles ferociously in the wind. The Kuplins huddle together, knowing at any moment the door could fly off and suck them into the storm. No one's going to come and get you out. You have to... You're in pure survivor mode. You have to do for yourself because no one else is coming to do it because they don't know where you are. They don't know what's going on and they're in the same position you're in. Suddenly, piercing through all the noise, there's a cry for help. It's a man's voice coming from the stairs outside their flat. The Copelands haven't even met their neighbours yet. They've only been in Darwin for less than a day. There was somebody on the stairs shouting and it was the people upstairs who were trying to come down because their flat had been on the end. We were in two, two rows of flats, on, one on top of each other. And this husband and wife and their two kids, the man had come down trying to bring them down and needed help because of the wind and the rain. And his wife was imminently pregnant. Leaving your shelter during a cyclone is a massive risk. But as is so often the case with the Kuplins, when someone else is in danger, they automatically swing into action. We were trying to get the children down. He was holding the, holding a child, bringing it down, passing it to Dad who passed it to me, who took it to Mum and we laid them on the bed and then the other one and then the two men, my dad and her husband, brought the lady down. Um, because she was very, very pregnant, hysterical. By this time, we had about six inches of water on the floor. Dad had lashed the mattress, creating like a little teepee effect on the bed. And the guy who was there, the two of them had ripped off the single frame of the wall and lashed that to try to hold the mattress in place, trying to make a safe area that was as dry as possible, but protecting with the other mattress for glass and everything else coming through. So we put the two children laying horizontally across the bed because they were like two and four years old, they were young. And mum was dealing with this lady who seemed to be in the very early stages of labour. Peter and his new neighbour reinforce the shelter for the children, while Irene, the pregnant woman, and their dog take refuge inside Vera's large bedroom cupboard. They've done all they can to create a shelter for themselves and their new neighbours, but what they can't control is the structural integrity of their apartment. The walls look like they could rip off at any moment, and the roof is sinking, growing more and more uneven by the minute. If it falls down, they're doomed. I, at 15, could handle it better than a two- and four-year-old who had been woken up from their bed and held out of their house, not knowing what was going on, with strangers and thrown onto a bed with another one on top. So for them, it must have been even more terrifying and scared. I mean, they were crying and I was. we were trying to sing little lullabies and songs and because I'd done babysitting, it was kind of like, well, I'm babysitting them, but this is just a really extreme type of babysitting. I'm babysitting in a cyclone. One of the key characteristics of a cyclone is its centre, known as the eye. In the eye, air sinks rather than rises, causing the wind to stop and only small droplets of rain to fall. Everything goes oddly quiet, like nature has hit pause on all the destruction. But the eye is one of the most dangerous parts of a cyclone. The sky was green. 
I've seen grey storm clouds and I've seen yellow, purple and red sunset. I have never seen a green sky. It was eerie and you just kind of get this feeling in you that that is not good. That is, that sky isn't telling you it's over. That sky is telling you it's building up and the second half is going to be unleashed and it is going to be worse than the first half. People leave their shelters thinking the worst of the storm is over, but they couldn't be more wrong. This cyclone is only just getting started. We had heard another family who were directly above us and my dad and the other man and myself went out because they had the husband and the wife and two children and a third child with them that were staying there and we had to get them down but by this time the staircases were not as intact as they were the first time they were still attached to the house but much more rickety peter doesn't want to leave their shelter again but he can't allow another family to stay in harm's way to avoid standing on the stairs vera gets up on peter's shoulders and gets the parents to pass their children down to her. It works. Both children make safe passage, but just as it comes time to get the parents down, the wind picks up again. And the husband was, he'd got her down, she was being held, he was coming down the stairs, and my dad had got him, and he'd got the sheet around him and had done some sort of really quick knot to kind of keep him there and was almost pulling him in to to get him because the stairs were starting to move again and the wind just picked up. It was like it was a little bit calm and then it just whipped up. Tracy was coming back around for her second half and she was taking no prisoners. No mercy, no prisoners. The second half unleashed like Armageddon. Cyclone Tracy is back. In truth, she never left. As the wind picks up, the antennas at the OTC Coastal Radio Service Station are destroyed, severing all communication out of the city. The top end has always been isolated, but now Darwin is completely cut off from the rest of Australia. As the Couplins hurry back into the bedroom with their latest guests, something catches Vera's eye. It's something she'll never forget. This guy going out and he'd obviously been calling to some neighbours and his little child had run out, um, obviously thinking Daddy was going somewhere and wasn't going to go anywhere without Daddy, wasn't letting Daddy go there alone and wanted to be near Daddy. And this little girl just ran out, going, Daddy, 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 Daddy. And in a nanosecond, a flash, the wind had picked up and debris was starting to be through and we were trying to get back into this place, into my bedroom, and just in front of my eyes, like like an old silent movie where all of a sudden, like, there's no sound and everything goes black and white. And this child, this little girl who was running to get her daddy, who was coming back, had just had a sheet of metal take her head off. She was beheaded in front of me. And the father trying to to get to her and the mother coming out and couldn't get past the wind and shouting. And the wind was so strong, it took this little girl away. And it just picked her up and carried her. She was killed instantly. I felt sick. I just wanted to throw up. It's important to note that we couldn't verify the identity of the young girl Vera describes here being killed. The Northern Territory Archives holds record of five girls who were killed in similar circumstances to Vera's description. However, we decided against listing their names out of respect for the victims' families. We've included this account in an attempt to honour all of the children who were killed during Cyclone Tracy and to gain a full understanding of what it was like for those who were there.
By 4am, the eye of the storm has passed and the worst of the cyclone is here. Hit after hit of severe wind and extreme rain lashes the city with no end in sight. One of the things that makes Cyclone Tracy so destructive is just how slowly it moves. It just lingers and lingers, refusing to go away. While most buildings sustained damage during the first part of the storm, many were still standing. But during the second half, nearly all the structures across Darwin collapse or disintegrate completely. For those gathered in Vera's bedroom in Nightcliff, all they can do is hold on to each other, the building tearing apart around them. The roof had just been peeled back off and all the walls had just gone. So we had our flat and there was part of the second flat on the ground floor. We had lost the front half of ours. There was nowhere to go but stay where we were. You could see things going past, so there was still mountains of debris just being flying through the air and and you could see lightning bolts. I didn't hear the lightning as much because the sound of the wind and everything else is so loud. I have children here that I'm holding on to and by this time now there were five little kids not two anymore, five little kids ranging from two to about six laying horizontal on my bed and I was kind of had my back to the mattress so I could actually have my arms and legs and protect their bodies with mine and laying over them to keep them safe. And the cupboards had the adults because it was the only place tall enough that the adults, and there were six adults and the dog and the woman who is now more in labour in the cupboard. All across Darwin, similar scenes play out. Families huddle together in bathrooms and bedrooms, walls and roofs ripped off, relentlessly hit by wind, rain and debris, barely holding on. Some are forced to take refuge in their cars, a highly exposed position where they're left with little choice when their homes are completely destroyed. For others, it's an even darker picture. Mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, friends and lovers pulled into the storm and thrown hundreds of metres away. Some scramble and manage to find cover. Others are lost forever. Hours pass like days until the first hint of daylight pierces through the clouds. Another eerie silence falls over the city as the wind finally starts to ease. But this time, no one leaves their shelter. They wouldn't dare. The rain is there, but it's not... It's not the same horrific sounds that have been there. You could tell either it had moved past or dissipated. I'm not exactly sure what happened at that time in the morning, whether it had moved on further or it had just blown itself out. And we started hearing people calling like they had in the eye. Are you okay? Is anybody injured? Is anybody hurt? Who's there? Survivors slowly emerge from the rubble but they are confronted by what can only be described as a nightmarish wasteland. Everything in Darwin has been flattened. Barely a structure remains standing. Even the trees are gone. It's hard to take in when, although we had only been there from the next morning, we're now not even quite 24 hours. But when we'd come in, there were roads and there were trees and... Even in the city, you can still hear sounds of birds and that underlying hum of noise. But there was nothing apart from people calling. There was no birds, no birds calling, no sounds, no trees rustling. The wind was there, but there was no trees because there's no leaves on the trees. And it was like a nuclear bomb had gone off and everything had just been flattened. Darwin, Christmas morning, 1974. In the dawn, silence. Not even the sound of a bird. The body count begins. 37 dead, 100 missing. No water, no power, no refrigeration, no church bells, no celebration. In the dawn, silence. But I'm not crying for me, I'm just crying for Darwin. 
Have you lived here long? Oh, so Only 12 months. But it's such a mess. Well, it's just a, it's a, a bloody disaster, that's all it is. It's just, I mean, nobody, you could not describe in words to anybody anywhere that have to come and see for themselves. It's just not possible to describe it. On Christmas Day 1974, the capital of the top end is gone. Darwin is no more. There's even talk at a federal government level of abandoning the city altogether. Almost 40,000 people are now homeless with no electricity, no running water, no sanitation and no shelter to protect them. As the heat and humidity starts to rise, fridges full of Christmas dinner and holiday supplies start to rot. The risk of disease spreading is very real and with all communications to the outside world cut, it'll be hours before any help arrives. While the storm might be over, a whole new type of survival begins for those who are left in Darwin. There wasn't an inch of space without debris or dust or brick or metal. And that's why they told the skids to stay inside. It was like, it's dangerous. I mean, there is glass that had been almost powdered in shards with the wind. It wasn't just big jagged pieces of glass. It was just like... Someone had sprayed talcum powder, but it was glass. While everyone in Vera's bedroom has survived, their apartment is gone. They've got nothing aside from the clothes on their back. With all the destruction, no one can make sense of where they are. It's like they've woken up on a different planet. Author Sophie Cunningham explains. It was intensely disorientating because people would step out of their house or their basement and... Everything had disappeared. There was just rubbish everywhere. So having to orientate themselves to work out where other streets were, how could they walk four blocks to see if their friends or members of their family were okay. Even those tasks, like there weren't blocks anymore. You couldn't really work out where the road was. There weren't signs. The main concern was, am I okay? Is my family okay? Are my friends okay? Are my neighbours okay? Some people went into this mode of, we need to work out how to help and what to do, how do we get food, how do we clear out the freezers since the power's off and cook what's left that went straight into some kind into a practical mode. Other people, maybe people who were less bonded to the place, would get me out of here. Some people panicked. For 15-year-old Vera Coupland, her mother Irene and stepfather Peter, their first instinct isn't to look after themselves, it's to help others. I've got to say to Megan, we can lay people down. It's what can we do? What can we salvage to get these people comfortable to get them to a hospital? Unless you've lived in the place for a while and you really know it well, we had no idea how to get to anywhere because we'd only driven in the morning before and it was like, where, where, which direction do we go in? Where is everything? That lady went to the hospital um, with her husband because obviously she needed an antenatal unit and specialist care to to deliver her child. Mum stayed with her um, for as long as she could until they said, it's, it's not far, we can get her there now. It was very different from the journey we'd had to the house and the journey leaving the house. While the people who bunkered down and survived in Vera's bedroom will be linked for the rest of their lives, they'll never see each other again. We were then taken to a hangar where all the RAS families were being put for the emergency and my dad being the military personnel, um, he was immediately had to go because my father was um, a radar tech, which means he had to get the radar up and running for aircraft to come in. So he was essentially needed, so he couldn't be put on any other duty because his work was to actually get the radar up that had been knocked out to try to actually make it safe for planes to land. And there was a, a base hospital, and my mum went there and said, I'm a nurse. The armed forces are put to work immediately, trying to re-establish communication with the outside world and respond to the disaster. But they're heavily undermanned. They'll need all the help they can get. Because by this time, there was still no emergency services. It was just the people that were there. 
So you had to muck in and do what was required of you. And that's what we did. Peter gets to work re-establishing radar control at the airport while Irene joins the emergency staff at the hospital. For Vera and the other children of servicemen and women at the base, they're given jobs too. One of the roles includes supervising the distribution of a large water supply stored at the base. With services down across Darwin, it's vital water doesn't go to waste and gets to those who need it most. Part of the job requires a spotter to report from a high lookout point about who is approaching the base. Vera is quick to volunteer. So I got up there and when I looked down, I suddenly realised I was getting a real deja vu of the stairs outside our flat that were rickety and went... I really wish I hadn't said I was afraid of heights because I'm not afraid of heights, but I'm really, really not happy with metal stairs, having seen how our metal stairs are gone. I was quite happy to get down from the stairs, frankly, Um, and I don't know whether my mind had wandered. It was still wet. It wasn't pouring with rain, but it was still wet um, and raining, and I slipped. I don't know, I lost my footing or... But one minute I was on the stairs and the next minute I was on the floor. And hurting. Badly. And just kind of laid there for a bit going, oh, that really, really hurt. Really hurt. I knew I'd hurt myself, but I also knew I could move things. So I went, okay probably really, really badly bruised and you're going to have pretty colours all over you tomorrow and the next day and you're going to be stiff and sore. But that's okay. You're like an idiot yourself, but get up and just take it slow. Vera picks herself up and dusts herself off. She's in a lot of pain, but she's not the type to complain or cause a fuss. Vera is a coupland. Getting on with it is all part of the gig. What you know is, is that whether you like it or not, the service comes first. Your dad is an airman or a soldier or a sailor first. Then his rating or his job is second. The wife and children come third. You learn your place in the hierarchy from the moment you join. I'm proud being from a strong military background. I'm really proud of the life that my parents chose and how it's made me who I am. Yes, there were parts of me saying, I just want to kind of cuddle my mum and cry. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I would have had a mum hug or a dad hug and a group hug. It would have hurt, but I would have had the hugs. I, I would have loved all the hugs. But you know that that's not how it is. As Christmas Day in Darwin limps on, army reinforcements finally arrive led by no-nonsense Army Major General Alan Stretton and Commonwealth Minister for the Northern Territory, Rex Patterson. Their mission is unprecedented. They must bring order and control to a city that lies in ruins, with tens of thousands homeless with nowhere to go. On surveying the scene, they decide Darwin must be evacuated. It's too dangerous for these people to remain without even the most basic of services. Women, children, the elderly and the injured must leave the city immediately, whether they like it or not. Only fit and able men will remain to begin the long and painful process of rebuilding. Major General Stratton in Darwin in charge of the emergency operations. I want people today to register at all the points that are being set up. Register for movement south. Unless you register, you will not be eligible for these concessions from the government. But there are still too many people in Darwin. It is still not safe for these large numbers of people to be here. By the end of Boxing Day on December 26th, over 10,000 people have left Darwin by road or air. Top-end towns south of Darwin like Catherine, Tennant Creek and Alice Springs offer help to countless refugees, giving them food, shelter and access to medical supplies. 
A permit system is set up, ensuring only those who are involved in the relief or reconstruction efforts are able to enter Darwin, preventing the early return of anyone who had been evacuated. Most residents leave with nothing, relying on the kindness of strangers to survive as they plot out a path towards a new life. Down Creek, and Catherine, they were great, real great. They gave us petrol, checked our tyres. If the tyres were no good, they'd help us. Fit new ones on, food, anything you like, clothing, anything. So now I'm hoping to go to Tasmania. I'm hoping, but I think we're going first to Adelaide and further on to Melbourne and then Tassie. Back at the RAF base, Vera and her mother have to be patient about leaving Darwin. Her stepfather, Peter, is military and essentially required, and they're not top of the list. All the while, Vera's back pain persists, but she still hasn't told anyone. And although I was still hurting, I still thought, because I was walking around, I was just bruised. I hadn't even told my mum and dad, because they were too busy. Dad had enough on his plate, and I figured, you know... When we got to wherever we were going, I knew we were going to be evacuated to Brisbane because we had family there. I'd tell mum what was going on there and I could get checked out then. I was fine. So I thought. On December 30th, the time finally comes for Vera and her mum to leave. They'll be some of the last civilians to depart Darwin. By this stage, about 35,000 people have left. The airport is a hive of activity, planes landing and trucks loading up, Hundreds of army and police arriving from around the country to help with the cleanup. Vera's stepfather Peter comes to see them off. He won't be going anywhere. Like many others, it'll be almost a year before he sees his family again. Vera and Irene enter the massive Hercules and go to their seats, although you could hardly call them seats. The Hercules is a military aircraft designed for troop, medivac, and cargo transport with rope looped around metal frames and a tiny plastic seat. In a normal aircraft, you can feel the movement. In Hercules, it shudders and it judders. It's not only loud, it was actually quite scary because like when the wind was going through us, you feel the vibration of the aircraft going through you. And lots of people were crying, the kids were crying and people were crying because that same feeling of... This is just like that wind going through you. As the Hercules takes off, there's no cheers or cries of relief. The future for everyone on board is so uncertain. They've lost their homes, their jobs and their livelihoods, not given the opportunity to rebuild. For many, life in the top end was as good as it gets. Sadly, most people on board will never return. For Vera and Irene, the thought of leaving Darwin isn't as hard as it is for the others. They've only been here for a week, but they're about to be confronted by a new kind of nightmare, something no one saw coming. I was sitting on the seat, but behind me there was like um, a metal strut that just all the way down the aircraft, and that's what they lashed the seats to. And as we were climbing... I could feel pins and needles in my feet and my toes. And I just thought, freezing cold, and they're not warm, and we didn't have a lot of clothes on, so there was no blankets or anything like that. It was just the clothes you had on your back. And as we were pulling up, I could actually feel it going through both my legs, and it was creeping up my feet. I was just, like, sitting there watching my feet going, I can't move my toes. And I can't move my foot. And now I'm getting scared. Really scared. And I tap my mum on the shoulder and trying to shout to her. And I'm I'm shouting to her saying, I can't feel my feet, mum. She said, what? And I'm shouting at her, I can't feel my feet. And she looked at her and said, I fell off a ladder. Off the stairs. And I can't feel my feet. And... Now it's up to my ankles. Little did Vera know, but when she fell over on the stairs at the RAF base on the morning after the cyclone, she broke seven vertebrae in her lower back. She stoically put on a brave face and tried to carry on, but now her injury has caught up with her. And she immediately put a hand up to the load master, called him over, and this is where if I hadn't had my mum, who was a nurse, 
chest straight to him. She said, my daughter's getting creeping paralysis. I think she's got a spinal injury. We need to get her off this seat and put her on a board. And you need to radio ahead that you've got a spinal injury on board that you didn't know about, I didn't know about. But there needs to be somebody waiting because she's got creeping paralysis and I don't know where the break is. I don't know what she's done to herself, but I figure she's done a nasty injury to her back. And I have no idea what is happening, but she's losing the use of her legs. Because of the powerful movement of the Hercules aircraft and the awkward position of her seat, Vera's vertebrae have become misaligned and are putting immense pressure on her spinal cord. As a result, she has developed a disorder called creeping paralysis, a condition where muscular function is lost from the feet up. It's an extremely dangerous condition that can impair the whole body, including the lungs. If it's not stopped, the patient can become a paraplegic, or even worse, die. Irene takes Vera out of her seat and straps her to a wooden board to lengthen out her spine. But it's only a temporary measure. It won't stop the progression of the disease for long. And they radioed through and the loadmaster came back and said, we're pulling down and there was a doctor coming to assess. Doctor came on board, had a check, spoke to my mum and he said, I, our hospital's not going to be able to deal with that. I can't do anything for her. Um, you're best to get her through to Brisbane. We'll radio through to Brisbane and we'll have an ambulance waiting to get her to the hospital. Irene is livid. They've wasted critical time landing and taking off time that could cost Vera her life. She grips firmly onto the wooden board, holding Vera's broken body together, protecting her from any rogue bumps or dips. Vera grits her teeth and tries to think of something else, but it's impossible to with the extreme pain she's in. Time is running out. We arrived at Brisbane Airport. I was loaded into an ambulance. The medic sits in the back with me and says, your mum will meet you at the hospital, but... We've got to get you to the hospital and the doctors are waiting. Radio to head. They know you're coming. But because everybody coming out of Darwin had to be processed, my mum had to go to a processing centre to say where we were, who was left in Darwin, who was down here and what was going on. Vera is separated from her mum at the worst possible time. But Irene has to register with the government, otherwise they'll lose all their benefits. Vera is a strong, independent young woman but she's only 15 years old, and now she's all alone. By this time, the paralysis has gone past my knees, is up into my thighs, and I'm feeling the numbness and tingling right through my hips. There's no feeling. The pain in my back is excruciating, but I can't feel my legs. I can't move them. And he, like, touches them, nothing, uses a pen, uses like his nails, nothing that he does. I can't feel anything from the bottom of my feet, nothing. So at the moment, I'm ostensibly a paraplegic with no legs. The medic tries to keep Vera calm as a police escort rushes her towards the Royal Brisbane Hospital. But suddenly there's another delay. The hospital declares they don't have the capability to deal with her condition, so they divert them to another hospital with a specialist spinal unit 20 minutes away. Vera screams in anger. If there's another setback, she's a goner. And all I could think was, does my mum know where I'm going? And he went, oh, someone will tell her. And I'm thinking, but they told her the hospital I was going to and she's going to think I'm going there. So all I can think of now is my mum's going to go to a hospital and I'm not there. And who's going to tell her where I am? And I'm just kind of going, I'm all alone and I don't know what's going on, and I'm scared, and I'm crying. And the guy says, it's gonna be all right. And I went, it's not all right. It's really not all right. When the ambulance finally arrives at the spinal care unit, the creeping paralysis is now higher than Vera's hips, and it's starting to affect her right arm. She doesn't have long left before it gets to her lungs and loses control of her breathing. I had a stream of people coming in and out, taking blood, checking things, saying we have a theatre ready, you're going to have an operation, there's an anaesthetist and a surgeon and a whole group of people saying we've got to stop this, we've got to get you into theatre, we are going to put metal rods in your back, we've got to support this, we've got to get this done. 
and they were adamant. They were saying, I was never going to walk, I would never have children, and if they didn't rob me, I was not only losing my right side of my arm, but they had no idea if I was going to use my left and whether I was going to be in a wheelchair and just using my teeth to do things. He said, like, there's people that paint with their teeth, or you might be lucky you might have your left hand. We don't know, but we've got to do something. He said, at the moment, you're a tetraplegic, or you could become a quadriplegic. While the doctors are concerned about the risk of long-term disability, they are most worried about the threat to Vera's lungs. They settle her down and stretch out Vera's back, aligning everything to take the pressure off her spine. Slowly but surely, the disease stops its spread. While she can't feel anything below her hips and her right arm is numb, Vera's life is no longer at risk. The worst has been avoided, but as the doctors know, it's only part of the picture. If they don't operate now, Vera could be disabled for the rest of her life. I know that as a minor, they can't do anything without an adult's permission. And I didn't have an adult for my family there at all. And precocious brat I may have been, but I was so terrified that whatever they were going to do was going to make everything worse. It was like, whatever happened, it was just getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And what they sounded like they were going to do, it didn't sound like it was going to make anything better. Against the doctor's advice, Vera refuses surgery. She's right. Without her consent, they can't operate unless a guardian overrules her. It's a dangerous call. Vera's already misdiagnosed herself once and she's wound up here. She can't afford to be wrong again. My uncle and my brother found out where my mum was and they went and got my mum and brought her to the hospital. By this stage, my mum had then heard all the story and realised what was going on and she said, I think she's gone through enough right now. We need to give her a couple of days. And all I remember saying to my mum was, I walked on the aircraft. It was the movement that moved everything. I walked on. Maybe if I have time, it will get better. I said, but if it's not, then I've got all the time in the world. I'm 15. Can't I wait weeks or months and see if this happens? And my mum, and by the time my brother, and the rest of the family, the nurses were there and said, we're happy to let her wait. It's her body, her decision. And the fact is, she's right. If she walked on, is it life-threatening? If it starts to affect her breathing and it's life-threatening, then yes. But for now, it's not affecting her breathing. So maybe give her some time and allow her to come to terms with everything that's gone on in the last five days in her life. Doctors concede that while the disease is no longer a threat to her lungs, Vera can take some time to think about what she wants to do next. But if the creeping paralysis starts again, they'll be forced to intervene. Vera is still in incredible pain, but with her mum and family finally by her side, the panic and sheer terror of her trip out of Darwin is over. What I was extremely fortunate and was almost a miracle was the fact that not one of those seven bones severed my spinal cord. Because if they'd severed my spinal cord, I would never have recovered. I would have been, at the minimum, a paraplegic all my life. My mum getting me on the flat board as quickly as she did allowed my back to be straight, not sitting up, not on the strut, and not having the bones moving. But if not, with everything that happened, that motion, was highly likely, and they put it at probably 95%, that one or more of those vertebrae would have severed the spinal cord. She literally saved my legs. Over the next few days, Vera starts a treatment called traction. It's a technique where weights and pulleys place tension on a displaced bone or joint to help pull it back into position and keep it still. It's extremely uncomfortable and time-consuming, but it's better than surgery. While her recovery will be long and drawn out, going in and out of traction for the rest of her teenage years, Vera will regain the use of her legs without ever needing surgery. From the time I broke my back through my life so far, I've been in traction 46 times when my back has gone out, so to speak. 
While the death toll was undoubtedly higher, 71 people were officially killed during Cyclone Tracy, most from flying debris or crushed beneath their houses. There were a further 145 admitted to hospital with serious injuries. It was rated as a Category 4 cyclone, with one of the most compact weather systems ever recorded, with over 250 millimetres of rain falling in the 12 hours till 6am on Christmas Day. 90% of homes in Darwin were demolished or badly damaged. In the weeks that followed, the largest evacuation of an Australian city was carried out, with more than 35,000 Darwin residents relocated, some against their will, many of whom never returned. The total damage bill from Cyclone Tracy is estimated at 837 million Australian dollars in 1974 currency, the equivalent to over 7 billion Australian dollars today. It would take years to re-establish the city, with building codes changing to ensure structures could withstand cyclones better in the future. The event profoundly influenced the Australian perspective on the threat of tropical cyclones. It's taken me 46 years to be able to talk about Tracy. And I've worked hard to get to the point where I've laid many ghosts to rest and the sights and the sounds and the smells that just assaulted us from the moment it started to the moment it ended. I remember them. I feel them. They are in my psyche and in my soul. You don't ever, ever forget Tracy. Her impressions are forever. We were under the bed for approximately five hours, singing carols, if you can believe it. As soon as the wet finishes, the dry season starts again, yeah, I'll be back like a flash. I would like to go back, yes. Oh, I'm going back to down. No worries. I'll go back. Yeah, definitely, it's home. It's beautiful before it'll be beautiful again. On December 31st, 1974, Major General Alan Stretton handed back civilian control of Darwin to local authorities. Many were glad to see him go. Of the 35,000 people who were evacuated from the city, many didn't want to leave in the first place. For those who wanted to return, they had to be accepted via a permit system installed by the army before they left. A returning resident had to prove they had somewhere to live before they were granted access back to their homes. Many couldn't, and disenchanted by their treatment, never returned. For those who remained, things weren't pretty either. Come on, don't bust it. Just get the earth on it as quick as possible. Is that all there is? Yeah. Okay, get the earth on it quick. We've been to so many homes where all their Christmas presents are wrapped up. The homes smashed to people, pieces, and you open a cupboard, and there's all the children's presents. Uh, there was one home there where there were four people killed, a mother, father and, and two children, and, and we opened the cupboards up yesterday and they were all the children's presents. And, and the animals, you know, wandering around and starving and wondering where their owners are. There's a lot of small sidelights to this thing that uh, leave us very empty, the police group as a whole. Police and firemen go from house to house, searching for missing people. They make grim discoveries, finding body parts rotten food and abandoned pets who have turned feral and need to be put down. A horrible stench resonates around each house. Christmas dinners with meat and fresh produce rotting in the tropical heat. There's so much waste that small graves are dug on front lawns, food buried, to stop disease from spreading. When the house is emptied, a large red S&C is painted on the front door, standing for searched and cleared. It takes months to work through them all. One of the most troubling aspects of the cleanup is all the pets that are left behind. Many owners weren't allowed to take them with them or they ran off during the storm and didn't come back. 
With no one to care for them, they roam in packs, searching for food and eating anything they can find, including body parts. Cops are instructed to kill the pets, owners never given the opportunity to say goodbye. If the storm itself wasn't enough to make you feel like the world in Darwin had ended, the clean-up most definitely was. Well, we just despair every day. As all the police wonder, and we discuss it every night, just how ever they're going to get the place back together again. It's the most incredible thing that anybody has ever seen, surely. For those who live through a traumatic event, it can be just as difficult to endure what happens next as it is surviving the storm itself. After my experience in the Threbo landslide, I thought it was my duty to put on a brave face in public, to be strong for all those who were lost. But the truth is, I was struggling myself. I'd lost everything, and no matter how hard I tried, there's no quick fix for that. It took me years to start coming to terms with what had happened to me, but even to this day, I still have ups and downs. While time may separate us from our trauma, it doesn't heal it. And perhaps there's no greater example of this than the victims of Cyclone Tracy. Author Sophie Cunningham explains. I think the real problem with the evacuation wasn't so much that people were evacuated, it was that they couldn't get back. So people ended up leaving town and didn't really understand that they may not get back for six months or a year. They ended up in random cities. People got separated, people were put on separate planes, like kids on one plane, parents not knowing for up to a week where, where their child had landed, whether they were in Perth or Adelaide or Canberra or Mount Isa. So it was very chaotic, which added enormously to the stress. Removing people to other sides of the country was possibly not useful and probably related to that sense about Northern Territory being a territory and not a real place. I think it broke some people's connection with the city. It made it very hard for them to recover and it was not ideal. And I know that uh, research about sort of how people feel about the cyclones, say, after 30 years, with the people who were evacuated, with the people that uh, still experience the level of trauma, thinking about it. There was support for survivors. Organisations created fundraisers. There was government intervention and people across Australia donated. But no one really wanted to hear about Cyclone Tracy. It became like a myth something that happened in a strange, faraway land. No one really understood what people had gone through. It's a bit like people come back from war and they can't talk about it. I think that was, to some extent, what this experience was like for people. And kids that were traumatised or behaving badly in class would just be told to, you know, they couldn't carry on about the cyclone. They, they couldn't use the trauma as an excuse for bad behaviour. I'm basically told to shut up about it. There was a real lack of understanding about what they had gone through, which made it hard for them to recover, whereas if people in Darwin all had a mutual understanding of what they, would, they had gone through and what they were going through. So it was an incredibly isolating experience, I think, because you had an extreme experience and then you're in a, in a town, in a city, with people who have might in theory, be sympathetic, but actually have no idea what it is you've been through. According to the Climate Council of Australia, the ferocity and intensity of cyclones in Australia has increased since 1974, with northern states Queensland, Western Australia and the Northern Territory bearing the brunt of the destruction. While measurements prior to the 70s aren't as reliable as what we use today, there's no doubt that the ocean is getting warmer the result of which are storms that occur in a more energetic, moisture-laden atmosphere. This creates cyclones that occur with a higher frequency and greater intensity. While homes and structures are built to safer standards, the increased risk of cyclone presents a challenge for those living in these areas. While some are embracing the task by creating more sustainable houses and businesses, it's understandable for those like Vera Coupland the trauma of what has already occurred is simply too much. I had nightmares for a long time and I would have to ask the staff to, if it rained or got windy, to close the curtains. Um, and in the end, they actually put me in a single room because I, I would shake. 
there was a lot of things on television about it and I actually got the television taken out of my room because you'd go to turn on and there'd be things about it or news flashes and I, I couldn't cope with it at all. After her near-death experience, Vera continued to defy doctors. Her stepfather, Peter, was given a compassionate posting six months after Cyclone Tracy so he could be closer to Vera during her recovery. She was in and out of hospital for years, put into traction more times than she cares to remember. But when she finally left hospital, she walked out of there on her own two legs. Vera finished high school and went to college, getting married and having kids. She now goes by the name Vera Cruikshank, having taken her husband's last name. She has faced other challenges in her life, overcoming health scares and even surviving a car crash. But through it all, her experience with Cyclone Tracy has proven to be a source of great strength. I went through a natural disaster, but I did not become a refugee or a victim. I learned through it and everything I went through to become a thriver but become more empowered. I always think about Tracy. Every time I talk to my kids and I see my grandkids, I look at them and go, I was never meant to have you. Every time I get up out of the morning, I look at my legs and I go, you still wasn't most able to walk on you. It gave me courage, it gave me strength, and it gave me a self-belief and self-determination that that 15-year-old girl who was terrified is now a 61-year-old woman who has tackled a head-on car accident with a drunk driver, who's tackled getting a virus and getting chronic heart failure, and who 15 months ago was diagnosed with a brain tumour. You can't have the light without the dark. And Tracy gave me more light than she did dark. The Elements is hosted by me, Stuart Diver. It's written and produced by Tim Russell with audio production and original music by Slade Gibson. Researcher and assistant producer is Claire O'Halloran. Thanks to the National Film and Sound Archive, the ABC and the documentary film When Will the Birds Return for the audio used in this episode. This show would not be possible without the kindness and generosity of survivors and rescuers. We thank them and pay tribute to all those still affected by Cyclone Tracy.